This podcast is Entel Enhanced. To see pictures, articles and links of what's being discussed, download the Entel app. Hello, welcome to the Big Scuba Show. Hi, my name's Nace Bagai. I'm an independent filmmaker and underwater cameraman. And I'm here on the Big Scuba Podcast to talk about all things diving and underwater filming. to the Big Scooper podcast. We are your hosts, Gemma and Ian. Before we get cracking with today's episode, we just want to make sure you have hit that follow button or the subscribe button, depending on what platform you are listening on. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy what you're going to hear today, we would really appreciate it if you can leave a review and a five-star rating. So now that's out of the way, we just want to say welcome and thank you for all tuning in. And now it's time to dive into today's episode. The Go Diving Show. Have you heard about it, Jen? I have. Yeah, well, I know you've been uh, just before the first lockdown, and uh, this is coming up for my third time. If you are interested, and uh, why wouldn't you be, this is the place to go to. Mm -hmm. This is the show to go and see if you are a diver or non-diver. It's open for everybody. You don't have to be a diver to have fun. The Go Diving. Let me tell you all about it. The Go Diving Show is where... Adventure begins. Dive into the incredible underwater world at Go Diving. Divers of all ages can explore the underwater world at Go Diving, an established dive show in the United Kingdom. The weekend will include keynote presenters by TV personalities like Steve Maxwell, Andy Torbett and Monty Hawes, as well as well-known underwater photographer Alex Mustard. Mm. Each year, the show attracts more than 100 exhibitors from around the world. A must-attend event featuring liverboards and resorts, as well as diving equipment and technologies. The Go Diving Show is a must-see. Whether you're a non-diver looking to experience the underwater world for the first time in the tri-dive, take a freshly minted student looking to learn more from the workshops or a salty sea dog Meeting up with the dive club for a social go diving is for you. So when is it? The well, let me tell you, Jem, it's coming up very soon. So you need to get your tickets. It's on starts March the fourth, runs through from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the sixth of March. Not far away then. No, no, no so it's not. How do we get tickets? Okay, so you need to go to. There's going to be a link on our show notes. There's uh, if you go to the look up go diving show. If you go to Scuba Dive Magazine, there's links there, mm-hmm. uh, and you'll be able to get a link where you can buy your tickets online. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, get them early because you don't want to leave it to the last minute because these tickets do, you know, they do sell out, you know, uh, so get your tickets early, buy them online, it's the cheapest and it's the best way of doing it. Yeah, and I think at the moment there's an offer on £10 for the whole two days, which, which is, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's damn worthwhile going. Uh, I, can't, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. You know, you're going to get a chance to meet some of the, you know, uh, some people who've done some awesome things in the diving world. Uh, well, and you know, in even for non-divers, there and and kids as well. There's stuff there. Is there going to be a bucking a bucking? 
I'll say it properly. <laughs> a bucking shark. How about that? I know, a bucking bronco shark. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so, you know, it's a great place to meet up with fellow divers as well uh, that maybe you haven't seen, and it's a great opportunity after all our lockdowns. Why wouldn't you? Come on. You know, we've had lockdown, for flip's sake, for two years. Now we've got a show. Come on, buy your tickets. Go buy your tickets now. Buy your tickets. Get Go to the link. Get your tickets, get there, and we'll see you there. We're going, we're going to be there. Yeah, you're excited, aren't we you? We are, I love it. That's great, it's a great show. <laughs> yeah, so get your tickets. Go Diving Show, March 4th to the 6th of March. So welcome to the Big Scooper podcast. Today we're talking to Nace Bagai. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Gemma and Ian. Yeah, no, you're very welcome. So you're based in Sydney at the moment? Yes, yeah, Sydney, Australia is where I call home at this moment. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really nice, yeah. So for our audience, do you just want to give them a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Of course. So I am an independent filmmaker and an underwater cameraman. So both of those two passions really collided with each other when I was seven years old. And I remember watching the original Blue Planet series for the first time. And the thing that really you know, affected me was when I saw the making of documentary and there were these cameramen wearing their rebreathers holding these giant cameras filming the massive school of hammerhead sharks that frequent between Malpelo, Cocos and Galapagos. And I immediately remember declaring to my parents, that's what I want to do when I grow older, which is combine cameras and diving in some way. And I had no idea how to do that, especially because at the time I was too young to take a scuba course and also um, underwater cameras cost a fortune to do. So I went through the filmmaking route for about 10 years in growing up in high school and later in film school. And the thing that really, you know, made me get back into diving ultimately was when I was about, I think, 18 and a classmate at university had asked me, hey, I need some underwater scenes shot for a short film I'm doing and would you be interested in doing it? And I absolutely did not hesitate to do that. And this um, production was set off the coast of a popular surfing beach in Sydney in the middle of winter with 14 degree weather, but it was crystal clear blue that day in the water. And even though it was very demanding in terms of the conditions, I will never forget the moment where my the minute my finger clicked the shutter of the GoPro, something else clicked inside of my whole body and reverberated into my mind thinking, this is what I've been looking for all this time. This is what I love doing. And I remember um, coming home from that gig thinking, now, how do where do I start? This is just... It was a very much a gravitational pull where I thought this is what I want to do. And I hadn't, I had at the time I had only done a beginner's open water course and I wasn't really um, taught how to free dive properly. So I decided to just um, take refreshers in both of those. And over about a year, I basically took as many free diving and scuba diving courses as I could while also you know, teaching myself the art of underwater photography and videography. And five years later, it's, I, I can't complain about anything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great journey. It's, um, you know, amazing that you just have a light bulb moment that you're going to do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's really amazing that you've been able to develop this uh, passion for diving and, you know, the uh, similar photography as, as well. And to, to develop that into an actual uh, business, you know, and uh, we spoke to a few people who have done that. Uh, but it's not easy. And uh, to be able to do that and get that going, it's pretty amazing, really, to, to be able to do that. Thank you, Ian. The, I think you've probably heard your other guests talk, but it's especially in somewhere like Sydney, it's it's impossible to make a living solely off underwater yeah. photography or film. So that's why I combined both of them. So that and also um, a, a normal day job like most other photographers. But um I'm very lucky that um, the manage the work that I have been able to do has managed to, it's been a very slow progression, but it's kind of like the same way it has been for diving. Like I'm kind of enjoyed being able to slowly progress from newbie open water diver to, you know, a rebreather diver now and a free diving, ex free diving instructor. So it, it does require a lot of patience in both, but I feel like that the two are very, um, complementary with each other in more ways than one. Yeah. I see you free dive down to 40 meters as well. It's pretty deep. Yes. You know, you want to do that. It's, um, it took me, um, a long time to get down that far, but, and it was in the middle of Sydney Harbor where it's, it's quite similar to the UK where it's cold, dark and murky and prone to, um, strong currents. But the trick with, um, free diving is that when you, um, shut your eyes off it signals to the brain that you're it goes back to like um when we were cavemen and that there were saber-toothed tigers the physiological response of shutting your eyes off is the equivalent to telling your brain there's no saber-toothed tiger just relax and chill out and um when you're descending down in conditions that aren't particularly inviting I find that doing that tends to be very helpful in getting me to relax when it's not exactly the Bahamas or somewhere like that. And so when you say you're shutting your eyes off, what do you actually mean when you say you're shutting your eyes off? You're not talking about actually, are you closing your eyes? Yeah, closing my eyes. So it's literally like um, the weight, like I wouldn't do that if I weren't tethered to um, a line going down there. And because I have a little, um, lanyard that attaches to my wrist to the line I know that I won't drift off and and lose sight and also knowing that I've got and this is like a important rule of free diving because I've got a buddy keeping his eye out on me at all times I know that oh she's not down on your own no though that's the golden rule of free diving is no matter whether you're in you know the ocean or pool is never do it alone even if it's just like an easy um dive within your limits because it if you're weighted or if you Mm. black out for whatever reason there's if there's no one to save you then you're completely toast yeah Yeah. it's a long way down 40 meters yeah do you think your free diving experiences and learning to free dive has helped with your scuba and your rebreather journey oh a hundred percent like i actually was talking to um a free diver friend of mine about how a lot of the habits that I learned as a free diver were life-saving for me as a rebreather diver because the way a rebreather works in terms of you know breathing into it like with the setting it up as well as when you're actually diving 
require a lot of versatility in it from like, I'll give you an example. Like when we set it up the night before, there are two checks that a diver has to do, which are a positive check and a negative check. And the negative check requires you to inhale the gas and then exhale through your nose so that the um, lung counter lungs, you know, compress. And it's the opposite with the positive, which is you inhale through your nose and exhale out into the loop so that they inflate. And as a free diver, you have to learn how to be able to have a large lung capacity and take big breaths, but also know how to nose vent as well. And you breathe through your nose when you're not, um, um, when you're just like doing dry meditation. And that proved to be very, in and the other thing is, is that when you're diving, the technique is the complete opposite with scuba diving, because with normal scuba, you just like breathe through your regulator in your mouth, inhale through your mouth, exhale through your mouth and bubbles go out. And when you need to adjust your buoyancy, you either take a big breath in or fiddle around with your obesity. Yeah. A rebreather is the complete opposite because the default method in which you control your buoyancy is actually the loop, which contains a lot of the gas. So if you're a little negatively buoyant, you inhale through the loop, like take a big breath and like... <sighs> And the loop will increase. But if it's too much, then you have to, you can't just exhale through your mouth because that will just add more gas to the loop and the counter lungs. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you have to exhale through your nostrils to get out the residual. And that's what we call um, optimal loop volume or minimum loop volume as divers call it. And the BCD is actually the last resort for buoyancy on a rebreather, not the first. Yeah. But another thing I forgot is that um, the one of the most important we talk in freediving a lot about how it's really eighty percent mind, twenty percent body, and knowing how to relax in a stressful environment and just tell your mind to shut up and just deal with it while staying calm is definitely something that for both scuba and a breather dive is absolutely imperative for me. Yeah. It's a, it's a uh, valid point because the, the mind is such an important, such a big thing, isn't it? You know, and that can make um, all the difference between a good dive and a bad dive. You know, we've had Christina Sonato tell us all about, you know, the five any reasons of why you can call a dive. And yeah. it can be that your kit, everything is all set up perfectly. Uh, your entry is perfect, but something can just trigger for some reason in your mind and that can be enough to think hang on a minute i don't actually want to be down here now for whatever reason and that can, and so it is controlling your mind and, and we see that with new divers don't we yeah. with, um you know where they can be full of that motivation to jump in that make that first dive in the water but the it's getting a, as an instructor trying to calm a new diver to say right okay it's all okay it's going to be fine remember the training getting over that first dive that the mind can play lots of games and uh especially when you're doing things like you know rebreathing re and that doesn't you know you, all the way through your career you have to control your, the role your mind plays. yeah the what the it's a lot like playing chess with your your head in many ways than what and i find that adding a camera to it often aggravates the chess game because without it, I can very much 
access that Jedi Zen mindset and just switch off a bit. But when I have a camera, I'm thinking, right, is the shot in frame, is the framing right? Is the light right? Is the color good? Am I in focus? And also is, am I safe as a diver? Like, do I have enough oxygen left in the tank? So it's very much a lot more stressful to add a camera for me personally, that is. Did you find the transition to rebreathing a smooth one or, you know, how did you feel when that, when you first got involved with that? Um, a bit, it was very, it's a, that's a really lovely, interesting question. I think um, on one hand, it was relatively easy, but on the other hand, it was a huge, it was one of the hardest things I had ever done completing that course, because in addition to trying to get used to that nose venting technique that I told you about earlier, it was Mm -hmm. also um, very much like um, a lot of theory and also technique in terms of like, you know, knowing what to like the knowing that there's a lot more potential for error to happen on that was something that took me and also it rebreathers are much heavier compared to um scuba and especially free diving because that's essentially like going from ultra minimalist to fully kitted out and I think the but the other thing is is that when I did my course it was in all of them were unfamiliar dive sites I had never been to before and I was um definitely like um trying to adapt to that as well as trying to adapt to it but I feel like that um we talk about this a lot and is that I feel like divers who have thousands of hours or like several hundred hours on open circuit particularly like the twin set um deco divers find it much harder to adapt to the rebreather because the because the technique is so different, it's undoing years of muscle memory. Whereas my experience um, was not as extensive as, as that, even though my number of dives were in triple digits, I feel like that it was just the right number for, for me to get used to it. And also because I knew how it worked beforehand and like the general concept, it wasn't completely foreign to me. Yeah. So the main reason you moved from kind of open circuit to rebreather, was that so that you could get depth for your photography and cinematography? There were many different reasons I did that, which were number one, I wanted closer marine life interactions. Like I remember the dive that really um, was the final nail in the coffin for me was when I was trying to like get close to um, a bull ray, a porcupine fish and big schools of fish on a single tank dive and they were all running away from me. and I was like <laughs> that's it no more scuba I'm going to a rebreather and um and of course like being able to get that close is very important for a cameraman but the other thing is, is that at the time I was really interested in doing going beyond the 50 meter range and potentially you know and learning how to do a trimix dive and the advantage of a rebreather according to what my instructors and mentors were telling me was it is so much more even though it's an initially steep investment at the start in the long term it actually saves heaps of money in terms of the especially in the the helium bill because you only have two three liter tanks rather than you know four 12 liter tanks clipped onto you and because it metabolizes it as you go it was just um, 
much it's much more practical for deeper dives in in my opinion and I also felt like that you know because the starting point was for my whole passion with diving and filmmaking was watching those blue planet guys dive on a rebreather there was always that inner kid inside of me over those 16 years that always wanted to make that tick that box off so it was definitely much that but to answer your question the main reason was definitely to be more silent and if I wanted to be longer in the water then I had that luxury because there's nothing worse than doing a rushed 45 minute boat ride and surface not having everything that you wanted down there yeah yeah Yeah. I think in the uh, animal world, isn't it? A sign of bubbles is a sign of aggression, isn't it? And I think that's why yeah. um, that can scare a lot of animals off. Yeah. Although I did speak to um, a shark biologist called Chris Harvey Clark, who says that um, with the Greenland sharks that live in Canada and Greenland, they actually are very inquisitive and like the bubbles. And when he was diving on his rebreather years ago, they wouldn't come anywhere near them because they there was nothing to distinguish him. So it really, but I think for 95 or 97% of the time, a rebreather will be more advantageous in terms of, you know, being more stealthy. And because I had experienced that as a free diver, I kind of knew already how much more advantageous it would be in that regard in terms of like being a little more quieter than a normal scuba diver not that there's anything wrong with scuba diving but it's just like yeah you you can there's there are some things that you can do on that and I've I'll we can talk about that later but I feel like it's like it has just a slight edge over something that's already good in its own right yeah so have has your work taken you to other countries and other dive sites around the world or are you most Um, based in Australia Yeah, most of it's been in Australia. I did um, go to the Galapagos Islands for my 21st birthday and I shot some scenes for my first feature film in, you know, Iceland, England and New Zealand. But most of it's been in Australia up until this point. Yeah, so whereabouts in the UK have you dived? Uh, The only place in the UK I've dived was um, Chepstow Quarry, a.k.a. um, the NDAC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's really good. So, well, you've had a little glimpse of what we can offer in the UK then. (laughs) Yeah, I would, I wish I had brought my scuba gear because the wrecks that you guys have got there look very appealing to me and I would have gone there if I had more time. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of wrecks in the UK, but um, Mm -hmm. Galapagos for your 21st birthday, that's, 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 that's a great place to spend your 21st birthday. Yeah, it was definitely one of the best experiences of my, especially because like the thing that, as I like going back to Blue Planet, seeing those guys film the hammerheads and being able to do that as an adult and film like, just like hover on the reef and have a massive school of female sharks just black out the sun and just come above my camera was the one of the most electrifying moments and I I know like you shouldn't hold your breath when you're on a scuba (laughs) dive but I just couldn't resist doing that because after about 10 seconds of holding it as soon as I let out my bubbles like they just vanished within a within a click of an eye yeah I bet I was just gonna ask you actually um 
you know, when you are going, so you, sometimes you're, you're free dive and sometimes you're on your rebreather um, and you are still scuba diving as well at different times, I guess. You know, yes. You, you use checklists because you, you, you're flitting between, you know, three different disciplines of diving. Um, yeah. Just, um, so I think for scuba and free diving, it's fairly automatic where, you know, you don't really need a checklist. I mean, you will go through it mentally and think, oh, I know what to do here. I think um, occasionally, like if I'm, if I have a very important job, then I will, you know, slow down a bit and make sure, right, are the batteries charged? Is the SD card empty? Uh, does the lens, like I'll double check everything just to make sure that everything's fine because if it's just like a normal relaxed dive then i'm less um stressed out in terms yeah. of like making sure that everything's perfect with a rebreather um i would say that um and obviously like i'm i'm not saying that um i'm very much a new diver there's a disclaimer to anyone who's listening to this so <laughs> don't don't treat me as the god of rebreathers because of how new i am to that but basically as far as i know like it is absolutely imperative to have a checklist whether it's in a laminated sheet or an app on your phone because what i did was i found that the um checklist although that i although it was very it had all the steps the way that it was written and designed in this um procedures didn't really um you know i found like the it, it kind of like made the sequencing more confusing than it mm. actually was. So what I did was I um, got my instructor, Ryan Duchatel to, um, you know, walk, we've set up the rebreather from scratch, ignoring the check because he knew it off by heart. And yeah. what I did is I notated every single step that he walked me through and pretty much designed like it in the way that, um, it, it worked for me because I'm a very much a visual learner and I like being able to like whether it's pictures or big bold letters with like um, variations in the design like I needed something that was a lot more easier to follow and yeah. also like when we were setting it up it was a really windy day and my checklist kept getting blown off the table <laughs> when we were setting up so I thought you can't go wrong with something that's on your phone and ever since then like I I, I, even though it's very much, I had the hang of it now and I don't really feel nervous doing it. I still follow that checklist. Like it's like, it's the Bible. So yeah, well, I think that's, any rebreather dive will tell you that. Yeah. Even for an open circuit, uh, you know, buddy checks, there are a lot of people that get complacent about doing them and you know, that's when some things go wrong. So I think, yeah, we've always yeah. got to have our, checklists and our buddy checklists in our heads yeah i still do the bruce willis ruins all movies um thing when i'm doing <laughs> because just just in case i had that slight doubt which is something that i i don't know if you guys experience this or not but whenever there's that little voice in my head saying did i forget something is something not quite yeah. i never ignore it like if there's any a, a sliver of a doubt i i always listen to that voice but i don't let it you know, send me into a panic at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So are you uh, still logging your dives? Yeah, I I don't. Unfortunately, my logbook ran out and got destroyed and oh, no. I haven't really been able to find an app that, you know, is 
easy to use and log it. So I do have like a little document on my phone where I log my dives just so I know what the number is. Like it just says dive number, um, location and any particular thing, like and factors. Do you like to, a book? To... Pardon? Do you like a book? Uh, I, 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 maybe I'm old school, you know, I'm, I'm not quite as old as Gemma, but I do like the um, having a book and uh, the, the, there's some great apps. There is, you know, uh, Paddy, SSI, Ray, they've all got really great apps out there and Powerlens are another one. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's something nice about having an actual physical book that you can write something down and is that- I actually, no, I, I have to admit, like I actually love the process of writing in the book, but um, I felt like that, um, after like, um, I realized just like how bad my book had gotten into shape. And I also like a lot of the dives where I was doing it, I ran out of time to log it. Like there were, some of them were like shoot dives or like liverboard dives where I had to rush from cleaning my equipment to working on the housings. And then there was dinner and then I was zonked out and just fell asleep. But I, I have to agree. Like I'm, I might be in my twenties, but I'm very much an old school guy when it comes to like writing things down or getting off my phone if I have the chance to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah, no, I mean, it's good to, you know, I'm only a new guy, but yeah, to log them and, you know, see what air you've used and hopefully see, you know, improvements as you go. So the geeky kind of thing, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, I find like the, sometimes like it's more intuitive, like where sometimes you'll, think like you as you get more experience you become more like the connection between um, analyzing what might have been wrong on a dive and like implementing it into your memory like it becomes more internalized rather than having to write it down but it Mm -hmm. I I could be in in the minority for all I know but it's I like I love the process of like fine-tuning um, not just like with diving, but also as a cameraman, just thinking, okay, I messed this up on this dive, so I know not to do that again for the next yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, talking cameras, how did you start out? What sort of camera or did you? Yeah, because as, as, as maybe somebody listening to this, they might be thinking, oh, I want to get into taking shots underwater or doing a bit of video work. So yeah, have you got any tips for them? And you know, how did you start? Of, of course, that's a very um, large question, but I'll do my best to answer it. So um, my first, um, the first time I had ever filmed something underwater was for the high school swimming carnivals, um, which was my tiny Sony camcorder inside a, like a, a plastic Sony housing that couldn't have been more than a hundred bucks or something like that. And um, I used that for, a little while before like abandoning it for a bit and then but then when I you know wanted to take it more seriously I couldn't at the time I had the Sony a7s2 which I was using for um film stuff on dry land but I couldn't um afford the housing just yet but another reason I didn't jump into the housing immediately was also because I wanted to learned the theory of shooting underwater and I knew that whatever camera I would use wouldn't necessarily be dependent on it. So I basically just took my GoPro Hero 3, I think it was at the time, 
and would basically put it through everything to like shore dives to deep wreck dives and um, learn a lot about stuff through like basically through trial and error essentially mm. and then once I was ready to you know put the Sony inside a housing I put it in a naughty cam housing and I only used one I still only use one lens when I'm shooting underwater which is the 16 to 35 um, millimeter lens because I find that the um, effect of refraction makes that lens appear wider than it like more versatile in its range than it would in Andre like for instance like a 35 millimeter um shot is the equivalent of a 50 millimeter 50 which basically means it's tighter and like let's say there's an octopus and I want to get a close-up of his eye and his little um siphon blowing air I can do that and then if I want to alternate to a wide shot of the pier in which he's sitting down then I can do that and a 16 millimeter shot looks like a GoPro mm -hmm. um, wide angle shot so it's a lot that versatility is just paramount for me as a as a diver and also it means I don't have to change lenses at all because there's always that it's not just a, a pain in the in the ass but it's also um, there's the risk of like you know water or sand getting inside the housing so if I just have one lens that can do everything for me then yeah. that does it for me but it ultimately like I often get that question what camera should I buy if I'm stunning out and the two questions I would really ask are what's your budget and what do you want to shoot and where do you want to shoot it so it's and if you if to any of your listeners who have a question about about that feel free to pay a visit to my website and I'll be happy to chat to you about it yeah yeah, that'd be really helpful. Yeah. I was, um, I can't remember who it was now, but I was reading some comments on uh, someone's post and they were talking about using macro lenses mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, so is that something you've got involved with? You know, do you use macro lenses? No, not, not really. Like I, I mean, I think that like it takes a certain personality to be a macro diver and but my main reason for kind of avoiding it for better or worse is that as a storyteller and a photographer, I really like, you know, conveying the massive expanse and the blue water of the ocean. And um, for me, like whenever I'm look at macro shots as gorgeous as some of them, um, I'm not, um, I definitely want to make that clear that some of the macro photographers do a masterful job yeah. with it. But when I look at it, I don't, you know, get the impression that I'm in the ocean and that I feel like that I'm, it discounts the, the beauty that exists beyond that tiny little atom that you see within that macro. And for me, like, I like to, I like, like as a diver, like I love that feeling of feeling like a tiny drop in a huge ocean. And I feel like the for me personally, like that's what I like to convey. And that's why I have the wide angle lenses so that I can, you know, my default shot is to show something larger, but if I need to get a closer shot, then I've got that. But I can't say that um, I'm a, a traditional macro photographer. Occasionally mm -hmm. I might go in close for a smaller animal, like a seahorse or a cuttlefish, but um it, it really depends on like what your philosophy is. And there is no right answer. It's really a matter of 
of yeah. taste at the end of the day, I find. So what's your, um, you know, if you were given a choice of something to uh, video um, underwater, what's, what animal really gets you going? Is it like an octopus or shark? Or, you know, what is it? Are we talking about something that I've already photographed and filmed, or something that I haven't done yet? Okay, let's do. Let's do uh, well, you, we, let's do both. Okay, so <laughs> what's the what's the one thing you've photographed or videoed that you think, wow, that's just amazing. I'd like to do that again. And what is the animal that's escaped you so far? Oh, that's a. I love that question. Um, in terms of the ones that I've already done so far, there were really, it's a, it's a three-way tie between, actually, no, a two-way tie between cephalopods and sharks, specifically with sharks. I loved um, working with the, the great white sharks of Port Lincoln because contrary to, you know, the work, like the Jaws movies and like the media reports, they're actually like very, well-behaved animals on the shy side and like they'll they're also like especially in COVID they're great at social distancing so <laughs> it's um it's quite a challenge trying to like how do they know they, pardon how do they know I don't know sharks are always underestimated in, in my opinion but I remember like it was very hard to gauge how close they would come to like I remember there was one that would kind of like rush into my dome and then turn at the last minute and he was like I don't know what this crazy neoprene clad creature is but he's no threat to me and the sight of pardon was you in a cage yeah, I was in a cage, but my arms and camera were right outside the cage. Wow. <laughs> um, but they're very majestic animals that I think um, don't deserve the the reputation that they have to non-divers. But with the cephalopods, I definitely, um, it's really between like the common, oct like the Sydney octopus that, yeah, because they're very diminutive but they're also very you know playful and you never know what kind of mood you're going to get when you encounter on some... what cephalopod is squid oh, and cephalopods include squids octopus and cuttlefish yeah um so you never and they're very they're so intelligent but you never know what kind of octopus you're going to get on the day like is he going to be grumpy on a saturday morning is he going to be <laughs> playful and make a sequel to my octopus teacher is he going to be shy is he going to be um so like and it's very like it's the perfect kind of unpredictability where you can have fun with it and of course the giant cuttlefish are amazing to to encounter and like yeah i i just love the way that they're chromatophores which like the pigment cells on their skin just change and they put on those spectacular yeah. shows for you when you're filming them yeah. especially because like with all cephalopods when they're changing chromatophores it's not just um a fancy party trick and they're actually communicating a certain message to either you or the other um squid or cuttlefish within or octopus within nearby yeah, it's a privileged position to be in underwater and seeing all that Mm -hmm. I, I saw a uh, octopus on the uh, deck of the Thistlegorn and it was just amazing. I just could have stood there 
all day, uh, you know, just watching it. And it was changing colours. It had other fish around it. And it was just like, wow, this is uh, absolutely amazing. Blue, blue, you know, it's a mind-blowing thing to watch, you know. It wasn't particularly big, you know, but it, to, to watch something change colours like that and then, you know, react, it was amazing. So, okay, part B of the question, what's the, what, what's the one thing that's escaped you so far? That's easy, humpback whales. Because yeah. I've heard them many times underwater and I've seen them in the distance, but I've never successfully captured one underwater before. And it doesn't help that like at like on average, Sydney's visibility rarely goes more than 10 meters. And um, usually whales, the whales that migrate past our coastline are very quite, they're quite skittish. So getting close to them is often nearly impossible. Like you have to really be ultra lucky for that to happen. But if I could, like, obviously like they're the tropical destinations, like, you know, Tonga or French Polynesia or a few others that are escaping my memory. But I actually would really love to film them in Norway, especially with the orcas too, because it's a interesting challenge working with that low light but also mm. you know I talk about the hammerhead shot that you know got me but the other shot that made me you know commit to a rebreather like as I got older was it's a shot of Didier Nuaro who's um, filmed a lot of it he's on the bottom of the fjord holding his camera out as a massive fleet of humpback whales fly over him and he narrates that there's no way that that could happen if I was on normal scuba gear. And to see the that and not just like an enormous animal full stop that's quite sentient, but dozens of them fly above you is something that I I haven't been able to stop. It's my it's my default argument for why an underwater cameraman can should switch to a rebreather if they yeah. can and. The orcas as well are very much similar to the great whites. I feel like that they're a very misunderstood animal. And I would, and also like the, that kind of chiaroscuro where it's the black and white on their, their bodies is just something that visually fascinates me in that regard. Yeah. Well, hopefully one day you'll get to. Yeah, just bugger off COVID and let me go to Norway without worrying, all right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you, you've spoken about um, obviously quite cold water. So are you quite happy transitioning from dry suit to wet suit? Um, before I, oh, this is a, a, we were talking about this a few days ago um, with me and another friend. Um, honestly, if I had my way, I would never dive in anything other than a dry suit if I could because it mm. is I find that not only am I cozier especially if I'm wearing my fourth element undergarments but <laughs> um I find that my buoyancy and trim is a million times better with um a dry suit rather than a wet suit especially <laughs> on a rebreather because not only is your trim better but also you save a lot more air because it doesn't come out from one of the three liter tanks it instead comes from your backup bailout tank that's in the seven to eight liter range so in air management it's also a lot more 
more efficient and it's it's cozier and and also i find the cleaning process is simpler because usually when i have a wetsuit i can't i i have to like wash all my gear together in a larger tub but if it's just my dry suit i take that separately and take everything else the wing the regulators the gloves the computer the mask and i can fit that all inside the laundry sink and wash that separately and worry about the dry suit mm. like it it's for someone who has slight ocd with their dive gear it's a lot more easier to work with rather than a, a wetsuit but as a free dive with a free diving well that's a completely different story mm-hmm. because a dry suit doesn't work in that regard but um if I if I had a choice, I would never use a wetsuit again for all things scuba or rebreather, unless it was a really hot um, dive site and it was too hot to wear a dry suit. But no, dry suits rock. Yeah. Are you um, doing particularly long dives then with your rebreather? Um, I haven't yet done a really long dive, especially because like you were asking me, like what were the harder things transitioning from scuba yeah. to the rebreather was the one of the things is that I'm so used to doing um short dives that are no more than 60 minutes and usually within the 45 minute range that that mm-hmm. is where I get my fix like after 45 minutes I'm happy to go back to the boat and I feel yeah. good but um so I've I still haven't it was very foreign for me to you know, be in the water for much longer than that and think, oh, I actually, now, now it's a matter of stamina rather than how much air, because if I yeah. wanted to, I could stay down there for four hours, but I just wasn't used to diving that long that in the first few dives, I tired out very quickly. But as a boat diver, if I'm doing like, there's one shipwreck here, which is one of my favorite dive sites in the whole country which is um 42 meters deep it's called the xhms adelaide which i would highly recommend if you come here um to me rather than doing two 45 minute dives on a single tank and having to change tanks in the middle is not really as pleasant as being able to do a cruisy 65 minute dive and knowing i can penetrate the wreck and not have to change tanks during the surface interval. Like for me, um, I, I haven't yet been able to going back to it. Like I'm not yet in the two hour range, but I'm slowly trying to get used to doing longer dives because it's just, I'm so used to doing like shorter dives, but in theory it makes it's I'm, I'm slowly getting there. Yeah. That's good. So what are you working on currently? Have you got any projects coming up? Um, there's, there's a few projects. There's, um, obviously like getting used to this rebreather and getting comfortable enough to operate a camera because unlike scuba, which is a lot more, you can kind of pick up a camera instantly if you wanted with a rebreather. Most, um, of my friends have said, don't introduce a camera until you have about 40 or 50 hours under your belt because it's just so much more complex so that's the one of the main things that take up my free time but in terms of work there's a couple of things from you know doing a marine conservation 
documentary series here in Australia to, um, you know, filming, wanting to do an underwater music video at some point, as well as um, um, I often um, shoot underwater scenes for like local productions here and as well as just gathering my own stock footage library. And um, as a dry filmmaker, there's many more projects that have nothing to do with diving that are later down the line, but I'm very much a person who finds it difficult to do nothing for extended periods of time. Like I have to have something that keeps me busy. Otherwise I'm, I'm not in a good mood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> so how many hours have you done on you, rebreathing? What, uh, what make have you got there? Sure. So um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I only have about nine or no more than 10 hours on my read. Like I'm fairly, I did my course only um, finished it about a month ago. So I'm fairly mint, but the one that I use is the JJCCR, which is made in Denmark. And um, every um, rebreather like has its pros and cons and there will always be like a factor that will determine, like for anyone who's interested in buying a rebreather, it really depends on, you know, what the customer and community support is like wherever you live, as well as um what you're looking for. Like if you're just doing, you know, shallow reef dives and all you want is longer bottom times and, you know, silent um, marine, life, marine life encounters, then something is massive as the JJ would not be ideal because that's more a, a technical, like a trimix divers rebreather. But for me at the time I got it, I didn't really know what I was, what would happen to me in my career. So I kind of just thought better to just get the most reliable versatile one that will um, be kind of fail safe in any environment and just know that it, it it's adaptable to whatever you do plus the community of local divers that we have here with the JJs is very strong and it's grown quite more rapidly than I thought it would but I kind of um it's it's just like um it was it was it was basically one that ticked all the boxes and I would also say that um it's not just the unit that you buy but also the instructor like if you um, have your dream rebreather, but the instructor is someone who you don't feel safe with, then you, you have to decide whether you're willing True. to compromise your safety for that. And fortunately, Ryan is someone who I very much trust and also get along with. And the rebreather I liked as well, especially because it's very simple to use. And then the rest is history. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's good. Com well, you need that combination for it to work. Yeah. And it's the same with scuba too. Like, yeah. even if you're yeah. just buying, if you can afford to buy like the more expensive gear that you know is reliable and won't let you down and is, and meets your needs, then, then go for it. And if you, and don't, um, if you have to travel a bit extra to get a better instructor, then do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's very good advice, actually. Um, you know, and they got to be, you got to be at, uh, comfortable with whoever's instructing you, especially the deeper and deeper you go. So uh, that's good advice. Yeah. Um, changing tact a little bit. Now you mentioned earlier about liverboard. Mm -hmm. uh, if we we've got a question for you, now if you could take a liverboard somewhere else, where would you go? 
Oh my God, that is, well, that's a very hard question to ask, not only because there's, but it's torturous for me to think about where I can go knowing that there's a new variant on the rise. Yeah, because you're a bit, you're stuck at the moment, your borders are shut, aren't they? No, um, Australia just opened up to a few different places, so I could go, the question is, is is just a matter of safety, not possibility well that that's just forget all that yeah that's okay but yeah that's anyways um bloody hell this um i would say french polynesia would definitely Mm -hmm. be on my list because of its i love shark diving um infinitely and but it also has other things like from whales to deep walls um turtles um shallow water I think French Polynesia is a very underrated spot that I would love mm-hmm. to investigate more. Um, I don't know whether Norway is a liveaboard destination, but if I, we'll, we'll get to that later. But another one that really um, appeals to me is, which is kind of a bit of an underrated destination is Japan actually. Wow, that's a new one. Because there's lots of shark diving, not just um, near Okinawa, where you can see the hammerheads and also the mantas, but also the carpet sharks and the smooth sting, like the red stingrays that hang there. I've seen pictures of that and it looked quite fascinating. And also, I love to see the kobudai ras as well as be able to go ice diving as well yeah in fact i don't um, remember any other guests talking about japan as a live site no it i had it was under my radar for years until i i saw um the this photographer take this picture of a school of hammerheads that rivals that of the galapagos and i just thought i wonder what what else lies on these shores but those two are definitely on, and as and of course, um, Truck Lagoon as well, especially because um, it's very versatile for all three types of divers free diver, scuba, um, open circuit tech, and rebreather. Like, no matter if you're only certified to 30 or 40 meters on scuba, then you can see some of the best wrecks out there. And if you're a trimix rebreather diver, then it's even better the deeper you go. Yeah. yeah and oh, i now you're now you're making me have a pavlovian response <laughs> you're hopping all over the place <laughs> no but that's good because it just shows how enthusiastic you are and it's just like yeah <laughs> and it, the variety that you want out of your diving you know cold water you know and the more exotic locations is really great it just shows yeah. how diverse yeah that you can well our oceans are Thank you. Well, it's I've it's funny that you mentioned the the cold water aspect because when I first learned to dive in Sydney as a 12-year-old kid, it was in the middle of winter, it was rainy, it was cold in the water, it was murky. And I remember how nasty it was trying to put on a seven mil suit that just stuck onto me and putting <laughs> on that that gear. And I just thought. I hate this. I never want to touch scuba diving ever again after I finish. <laughs> Your winters are like our summer, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, like it's it, the wind, but the winter, like even though like it's fairly manageable, the water temperature was just so, it had to be like 17 degrees Celsius. But later, the more I kept diving in there, I got used to it. And eventually when I would go to 
warmer locations, I found it hard to adapt to that because I'm so used to diving in rough, cold conditions that we have here that to get spoilt in that regard was a bit of a, a shock to me. Like a bit like a rude awakening, but more just like, oh, I can, I can actually relax and put my feet up mentally. Yeah, yeah, no, it must be. I mean, I've not experienced exotic warm water diving, so we're just used to UK diving, and you know, that's you know, yeah, visibility being poor and being a bit chilly, cold when you come out. So, it's- so you know, you know, the drill. It's, I, I only thought about this recently, but I feel like the, the UK and Australia, particularly Cornwall and Sydney, have a lot in common when it comes to the conditions and the marine life that you mm. and the scenes that you will see down there. Well, they're quite lucky on that coast because um, in some respect, because they can dive virtually all year round. You know, they get mm. the water come up from the uh, Atlantic. Um, although it does get rough down there, you know, on the especially on the north side of the mm-hmm. coast, you know, that can get really rough. Um, but for us on the east coast, we get a very short window where we can dive on our shoreline it's only like three or four months at most um i see pretty it's pretty good for them really on that yeah have you guys been to the um i heard that the there used to be really good basking shark diving there but then eventually they moved up to scotland have you guys had a chance to investigate that no it's on our bucket list to do yeah Yeah. it's on my list too like i i love basking sharks yeah yeah it's been um obviously through covid probably we've seen more of it because people have had to stay here and obviously go wherever they can to dive so yeah there's there's a couple of places in scotland um that do all the basking shots there's a certain season that you can see them of course yeah so we'll definitely um yeah look that one out for next summer for sure yeah yeah so another question is so if you could take three people diving with you so they don't have to be divers but it's just to show them the underwater world uh they could be past present whoever who would you take and why as if i'm introducing them to the underwater world correct yeah yeah okay um um if i could get my dad to equalize his ears better and not have ear problems i would definitely take him because I do just to um, give you a context of my background I am the only diver in a family of Persians who have never touched the water in their their lives so I'm very much an anomaly in that regard Um, so he would be one for sure Um, I am I've never thought about this until now Um, I think um, I would definitely want to um, take um, my, like my best, like if we're talking scuba diving, there are so many people or rebreather diving. There are a million of like, well, not a million, but like a lot of my (laughs) close friends who have never touched a tank in their lives that I would want to introduce that to. And um, oh, I, I can't, that's all I can think of that really, caught me off guard just there <laughs> good <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tricky question because yeah. when you put on the spot you know and 
if people are not divers, but you want to show them this incredible world. Actually, I got a really, I've just come up with the answer that was eluding me. I would really like to take people who, in a general sense, like either live in landlocked parts of the city or another a landlocked country or necessarily don't really care much for the ocean like they mm. are cool with fishing you know sharks or fish and kind of don't appreciate the environment beneath them and I would love to see them look you're I don't think you understand just how bountiful it is down there so let me let me just show you what what it's like and hopefully that changes your mind on and your attitude towards the ocean and hopefully um you'll next time you because actually that actually happened to me um earlier this year which was I was doing a dive five minutes away and I going back to the I saw one of the resident octopuses there were there was a piece of plastic like a bottle cap that had drifted into his um den as well as a fishing hook that had snagged him as well so i immediately um unhooked the the hook from him and by the time i had done that the cap had drifted further into it and i couldn't reach far enough to it because it was stuck um inside him and right as i kept going in that same hook that i um you know, had just gotten out of, snagged on me and nearly ripped open my dry suit. And at that point, I was really in a really cranky mood. And I thought, I'm going to give whoever's doing this a verbal ass whooping for this. And um, I surfaced and it was a seven-year-old boy who was just fishing, just curious. And immediately I realized that this was not the kind of character I expected. So I... I lowered like the the volume of my voice by a few notches and I just kind of explained to him what had just happened down there with me and I just said look man the next time look I don't have a problem with fishing but the next time you want to um fish anywhere just think about whether you're cool with um your hook damaging anything beyond what you intend to catch and um (laughs) It's funny, like um, in Australia, there's a very av- like avid community of fishermen that love to pile on people who criticize fishing. And I remember calling off to Facebook and getting bombarded with like lots of comments, like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking. And I was like, look, I'm not against fishing. I'm just against cruelty and gratuitous damage to the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit thought about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, got another question for you. Okay. Um, if you could have a billboard, all right, so you've got a billboard and you can put an image, a question, a statement, one of your photos or video, whatever you like, but you want to get a message out to the world, what are you going to put on it? why um before i i can i now know why this is called the big scuba podcast because these are very big questions you're asking me um okay jokes aside i would probably um it has to be like um either the hammerhead print that's hanging right behind me where Mm -hmm. it's those that big school of them the females that just came out of nowhere or um there's a photo of my 
um, one of my good friends who's a free diver, who was my safety diver on a shoot where she's in her wetsuit looking at me and the Sydney Opera House and Harbour Bridge are right behind her as the sun is setting. And it's, I think it's one of my most, my most popular images that I've taken, but I think that in a general sense, what, if I could put any image, it would be one that just basically shows the ocean as the inviting, enticing place that it is and how it never ceases to surprise me. And I feel like that a good photo is one that can communicate that without text supporting text. So mm. I have to think about which image does that the best, but you know, the more people that appreciate it, the better it is for all of us. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. That's good question. Good answers. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. It's been really um, interesting. And because there, you know, we see so many people just starting their journey and taking for, photos underwater it's a it's really good to show yeah where it can lead yeah yeah and I don't know whether this you guys have experienced but I feel like the the ocean definitely makes you a more humble person like you definitely yeah um like I you definitely stop feeling like everything revolves around you because when you're in the big blue you realize just how tiny you are and also because you don't have your phone and you can't get bombarded by emails or texts, you realize just how inconsequential like your inconveniences during the day are compared to what's out there. Yeah. Does that happen to you? Yeah, I think um, obviously, well, we've done a bit of sea diving, but yeah, it's just seeing something that you can't see on land and realize that there is all this living life below the surface. Yeah, but it's, it's also like not just the life, but also I find the, from a pure psychological perspective, I find the, um, you know, the relaxing nature of whether I'm holding my breath or breathing regularly down there to be enormously um, rejuvenating. I'm not talking about the part where you have to lug all your equipment and then wash it, but <laughs> your heart's going like this. Um, but for me, like that elusive minute where you can just shut off, not physic, not literally, of course, but um, and just absorb everything and kind of become just like switch your mind off and get rid of the chatter and just yeah. hear that internal silence of the mind and the external silence of the environment that's the from especially from someone who you know whether they no matter what they suffer from whether it's anxiety or depression or whatever the ocean is is like a second doctor in in many ways i was um i was in the red sea uh, a few years ago and uh, i was on a dive at uh, Yolanda, a dive site, it's a very, very popular dive site, and uh, Shark Reef and uh, Yolanda, and um, we, it's a, a current dive and uh, drift dive, and um, you've got a wall on your right-hand side, and the, the drift takes you along, you follow the wall along, and there's a couple of pinnacles there, and um, to the, I remember looking to my left, and, uh, well, to my right, there's all these colours, and you know, loads of fish and things like that, loads of stuff to look at, but to your left, and they tell you to keep an eye on the left because you never know what's going to come out of this deep blue. You know, and it's just this uh, really vivid royal blue colour 
of endless blue and mm -hmm. it's really really deep it's virtually bottomless you know and you, you, there's there's no other boats to see it was just like nothing but this blue and you felt it makes you feel like a little tiny speck of insignificance really uh in the water because there's just you know this uh, a space of water it's just amazing it's a really weird feeling you know and i've not experienced that until that yeah. dark and you just think wow it's just you know you it's just this endless space it's funny that you mentioned the drift dive with a wall because I was just having flashbacks to one of the Galapagos dives where with the pinnacles that you mentioned is that it was very similar where um, we were, the current was pretty strong as we were drifting. And I will never forget that moment where there were two pinnacles, one um, that was taller than the other. And the current was so strong. I could practically ride it without even kicking and i yeah. felt like iron man in the suit just like <laughs> just flying yeah. through that yeah. and for me like it's it's not just like the endless blue and the massive scale of it but also for me like um diving in all its forms is the closest i've ever gotten to those dreams i've had and i'm sure millions of other people have had of flying or being an astronaut in space have like i don't think there's anything that you know will you know give a high as good as that in yeah. in my opinion yeah mm. i agree with that yeah cool. yeah no, it's been really really good chatting to you also we just uh, too. if people want to find out more about you have you got like a website where they can go and social media uh, platforms where people can find you of course i think my sorry i'll cut that out um my website is nasebagai, that's N-A-Y-S-B-A-G-H-A-I.com. And it's the same on, I'm on Instagram and Vimeo as at nasebagai. I am on Facebook, but I try not to use Facebook that often. And, um, but yeah, just shoot me, you'll find my email on, on the website or an Instagram. And I'm just shoot me a message with any questions, whether it's you know, cameras, diving or rebreathers, whatever. I'm I'm here to chat. Yeah, right. that's really good. And yeah, I'm sure you'll hear from some of our listeners. So yeah. great. Yeah. Great. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you guys. Happy to meet you. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Now that does wrap up today's episode of the Big Scuba Podcast. But if you want to hear more from the podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button depending on what platform you are listening on that way you will never miss an episode from us but if you are listening on apple Podcasts and did enjoy what you heard today we would really appreciate it if you head to the show page to leave a five-star rating and review it really does help us if you do please take a screenshot of that review and send it to us on instagram and we'll give you a shout out to say a big thank you if you have any questions for us or anything that has been mentioned in today's episode, be sure to reach out to us on any of our social media platforms or send us an email. The links are in the show notes. We will get back to you no matter what. If you have made it to this point in the episode, we both want to say a big, big thank you for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.
Thanks for listening to the podcast. We are not affiliated with any agency or organisation and all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and those of our guests. If you wish to make any comments about this episode, then please do contact us via email or our social media platforms that are listed in the episode show notes. Alternatively, you can send us a message or voice message via WhatsApp on the Big Scuba Bat Phone and the number is plus four four seven eight one zero 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 five nine two four. We will always respond promptly and thank you once again for downloading this episode.